Good morning, everybody. Happy Friday to you. My name is Connor Collins, and welcome to the Concast, a podcast where we discuss all things health, wellness, and injuries in an attempt to better understand the human body. This is episode 129, where I had the pleasure of having a discussion with Susan Shipton. Susan is a massage therapist and educator in Toronto, Ontario, in Canada, whose practice is centered around helping those individuals currently in active treatment or suffering the side effects of breast cancer treatment. Throughout this conversation, we discussed the varying stages of cancer care and the roles that allied health play within them. We discussed the side effects of breast cancer treatment, including things like lymphedema and axillary web syndrome, And finally, we discussed the nuances of providing care to this population. There's a lot within this episode that I learned. I think there is information for everyone within it. One quick note, if this is a sensitive subject for you, you may want to click off of this episode and check out some of my past episodes. However, if you choose to listen to the episode in its entirety, I hope that you enjoy it and you learn as much as I did. Good morning, everybody. Happy Friday, and welcome back to the show. I have another interview that I'm really looking forward to discussing this topic. This is something that I think is a topic that I definitely need to learn more about, a topic that is often discussed in our field, but I think could be more discussed. So I'm really excited, Susan, to dive into the topic of your practice and your special interest in treating individuals with and or going through cancer treatment and just talking about the nuances of your practice and how you've built it over the years. So welcome to the show. And uh, once again, I'm looking forward to today. Thanks, Connor. I'm delighted to be here. So before we get into the, the topic at hand, Susan, maybe just give the listeners a little bit of a background about yourself, how you got into the industry of massage therapy and then where your practice is at now. Sure. I have been a massage therapist in Toronto since 2012. And previously I worked in book publishing. So it was um, quite, a, quite a change, as many people say, quite a leap from book publishing to massage therapy. And I went to Sutherland Chan School. And it was at Sutherland Chan when I was a student that I identified that I did want to work with this population. Some people have asked me if I've had personal experiences with people with cancer? And the answer is largely no. I think the reason I was drawn to this population is because I wanted to work with people at the confluence of the physical and the emotional and something such as cancer, which may touch on so many aspects of of one's life, seemed that. I was very fortunate as well that Sutherland Chan has, so they told us, they thought, that the only massage school in the world that offers a post-surgical breast massage clinic. And so as a term four student, I was thrilled when I got into that clinic. And it was largely working with people 
who were currently or had previously been through treatment for breast cancer. There are, of course, other reasons why people have surgery to the breast, cosmetic reasons or reconstruction for other issues, but it was largely people who've been through breast cancer. Was that clinic on site at Sutherland Chan or was it in a hospital setting? It was on site at the school. And um, I think the school was well-connected, had a reputation. And so there were some people who came back uh, term after term after term to receive treatment in that student clinic. And it's possible also that the school through its network and outreach to um, breast cancer treatment centers and patient support groups and rehabilitation centers made people aware that this service was also available at the school. Did your practice then when you left school start in this population and you just started to build it over the last, I guess, decade and a bit, or were you working in general practice and then treated a few patients and then that is how you built, or you've always been involved in the field of oncology? I started working in general practice, uh, but did try and market myself to this population. I made myself a brochure that I was really proud of (laughs) that talked about breast massage, all the different reasons why, what breast massage is and why somebody might seek breast massage. And that was not only post-surgical or uh, had to do with cancer. Um, It could be for hormonal fluctuations and fibrocystic nodules and all kinds of benign reasons why breast massage may be beneficial. But I did also contact, as I said, um, patient support groups such as Wellspring and Toronto Rehab and and different places where people who have been diagnosed and, and treated for breast cancer, where they are going. So I did try and market myself there. I realized quite quickly that I needed to get the extra training in managing lymphedema because that is a common repercussion from cancer, breast cancer treatment. I started that in 2014 with the Vodder School and completed that in 2015. But before I had completed that training, I started in January 2015, I started working at a new clinic called Toronto Physiotherapy, which is well established in Toronto as a cancer rehab clinic. and does a lot of outreach and marketing, a lot of patient education talks uh, to this population. And so once I was certified in managing lymphedema and able to work more extensively with people who have been treated for cancer, then the volume of patients that come to that clinic just meant that my schedule was 50% full with people who had some association with cancer, diagnosis, treatment, currently, previously, and experience as a great teacher. I really saw a lot of things and learned a lot of things and was part of a team as well. That was wonderful to have colleagues to to chat about things with. So that would be the majority of your practice now is related to that population, you would say, or all of it? I would say the majority. It's never been all of my practice. I still see people for all the usual reasons why people come in because they have a sports injury or they've been in a car accident or they've got general aches and tension, post-pregnancy because massage feels good and it helps them manage their stress, all the other reasons. But I would still say about 50% is, well, actually, I should qualify that a little bit. It's um, cancer-related or this is a, a generic term that I sort of use, but an inflammatory fluid condition, lymphedema, which may or may not be related to cancer, lipedema, which has a fluid component, Um, sometimes swelling in the lower legs from venous insufficiency, 
that kind of thing. And so that's where I'm employing my lymph drainage and um, bandaging skills to help manage the swelling. Got you. And of the cancer population that you see, is all of it or the majority of it breast cancer related or are you treating and helping individuals with various forms of cancer? The majority is breast cancer, but I've also worked extensively with people who have an oropharyngeal cancer. So they have complications and swelling in the face and the throat and the neck. Melanomas, uh, because melanoma is an aggressive cancer, the treatment is often aggressive and a lot of lymph nodes may be removed and then lymphedema develops. The urinogenital cancers, cervical cancer, bladder cancer, ovarian, prostate cancer. You've got a lot of experience kind of across the broad spectrum of cancers, let's say. Yes. And the reason I see more people with breast cancer, I think, is because the breast cancer community has been very well organized for the past few decades. Very well organized around awareness, patient education, fundraising, fast medical response times. And so people who are diagnosed with breast cancer are, I think, almost always told about the risk of developing lymphedema, what to watch for, the signs and the symptoms, possible risky activities that might cause a flare up. And so there's just more awareness around around lymphedema as one complication. I also see people who come in with other complications related to the cancer treatment. But by contrast, I also sometimes have people who've been treated for a different form of cancer and they say, nobody ever told me that I might develop lymphedema. I had no idea what was happening when my legs started to swell up. I went back to my doctor when I was finally able to get back into my oncologist and he referred me to the lymphedema clinic at the hospital and then it took eight weeks for me to get in there they, they've never even heard of lymphedema. So the communities are very different, I think, in, in awareness. Okay, that's interesting. Do you think that there are other, these other communities or these other, I guess, cancer-related conditions are starting to adopt practices from breast cancer to attempt to organize themselves a little bit more? Or do you think it's just sort of the nature of the I guess the high percentage of breast cancer in the general population? I think it has to do with the high percentage of breast cancer and that there were people who were just very organized. So I haven't really seen that other cancers are getting as much attention or that there is such an organizing force uh, around that cancer and awareness. So I know I can't say that. Okay. So you've been working in this field for well over a decade. My first question for you is, is this idea of, for myself, just speaking anecdotally in the community that I treat, I don't really know any clinics that I can refer to within my small community, let's say. And there are kind of whisperings of people like yourself in the city that are doing great work and people in other cities that are maybe within an hour drive of me. I feel as though in allied health, this community is being a little bit underserved. But again, this is just me experiencing what I'm experiencing in my bubble. And I'm wondering if you can speak to that a little bit, if the population's being underserved, if it's not, and maybe some things that we can do to maybe help increase the awareness of what allied health or the roles allied health can play in this population. Yeah, I think that's a great question, Connor. I do think that there aren't enough 
therapists who are trained and confident and comfortable working with people with cancer. And I hear this from my patients who might say, it's, it's really hard to find people like you and it's really hard to get in and our schedules are all full. And people do drive in from, from sometimes quite a ways outside of Toronto. Um, for patients, there are a couple of places you can look. You can go to the Ontario Lymphedema Association and look at their directory and they have a list of therapists who are CDTs, that stands for Combined Decongestive Therapists. So people who have um, the training through the Water School or the American Academy of Lymphology or, or many other places. There's also the Water School International has a directory where you can find a therapist from all over the world because they do offer training all over the world. So those are the places I direct people who are looking for somebody close to home, or I will go on on their behalf and look for people and then send them the, the listings that I find. I think occasionally from massage therapists, we still hear um, the old myths perpetuated around cancer being a contraindication. And that makes me very sad because it's not a contraindication to massage. I'm currently creating a continuing education course for RMTs on working with people currently actively in cancer treatment, previously in cancer treatment to help educate RMTs and give them the skills and the confidence that they need to work with this population. I think massage can be incredibly beneficial. And it's really sad when you hear that somebody has been turned away by their massage therapist because innocently, their massage therapist believes that this is the right thing to do to say, I'm sorry, but I can't massage you. It's a contraindication. But what does that do to the patient? Yeah, it makes them feel as though, again, they've got something that really, they really can't be helped with. I mean, we've talked about this. I've talked about this at length with various people on the podcast about, I've usually talked about it from the other end where people have seen 10 or 12 different specialists where they haven't really been given any answers. And so they feel as though they can't be helped. They feel as though what they have is unique and that there can't be any movement forward for them, or there's essentially no light at the end of the tunnel. And I think that creates a similar kind of feeling in that individual when they go, especially to seek out someone like yourself, I guess maybe not in the case of seeking out someone like yourself, but maybe they try to get in with you and they can't for whatever reason, maybe access to care, maybe they're traveling from too far and then they go to see somebody locally and they get turned away and that just creates more confusion within the community. During this time when somebody is actively in treatment and for a period of time afterwards, their contact with the medical community is largely through their, with their oncologist. And mm -hmm. so in the follow-up appointment with their oncologist, they might say, for example, somebody treated with breast cancer, I feel this tightness across my chest and I can't fully raise my arm and I'm not really sure what's going on. And the oncologist, understandably, is focused on the cancer. Their job is to fight the cancer and these other ancillary things that are not life-threatening are not really on their radar. They don't have time for that. But for the patient, this is something that they experience every single day, and it is affecting possibly their ability to do their usual activities. And it's a constant reminder to them that they have been through this difficult experience or are going through this difficult experience, and they don't understand it. And it can really affect them in many ways. And that's where I think within our medical community, if we could move away from the hierarchical 
pyramid style of healthcare where let's say the doctor is at the pinnacle of that and instead see that everybody is an expert in their own field. So the oncologist absolutely is the expert in the cancer. But then there are other manual therapists, soft tissue therapists who are experts in cording and seromas and scar tissue and the frozen shoulder that frequently results after treatment for breast cancer, not frequently, but commonly. And to recognize that, yes, these are common side effects and there is a lot that can be done to really alleviate those symptoms. And there are, there are experts who can help you with that and, and be referred. So that's what I'd like to see. And I'd really like, as I said, to help RMTs feel more, more confident to, to educate them and, and give them the skills to serve this population. Well, yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I'm very happy that you're creating this course. And I, I would agree that there are two, and I'm sure there are more, but there are two things that come to mind as potential barriers for someone taking somebody on for care. The first is the apprehension by the therapist, as you alluded to, where I just don't feel confident in my ability to help this individual. Part of that might be because they either just don't feel as though they can help. But I also think that these common narratives that are often taught in maybe entry-level education, or maybe they were taught in the past and now they're starting to slowly evolve out things like massage therapy causes you know cancer to spread or it's an absolute contraindication if somebody has cancer you can't even put your hands on them i'd love for you to speak to kind of those two barriers and any other barriers that you see as being able to allow these people into our practice and feel confident to be able to help them i'm sure your course will help people a lot but just maybe some general feedback. Sure. Well, I think this idea that cancer, sorry, that massage spreads cancer comes from another outdated myth, which was that massage increases circulation. Right. And we now know that systemically that's not true. If anything, the relaxation effect of massage brings on the, the rest and digest and so lowers the heart rate and so might slightly decrease overall systemic circulation. And so I don't think that massage or, or manual lymph drainage is going to spread the cancer any more than it is likely to spread by somebody just walking around and going through their regular activities where their heart is constantly beating. So we can feel confident that we are not causing somebody harm by, by giving them a massage, certainly. There are specific questions you need to ask somebody who's being diagnosed with cancer. And you may well have to modify your massage and your treatment plan and working with somebody. And so this is part of the education that I want to offer massage therapists. I would say that you should never ever massage directly over a, a cancer that hasn't been treated. So if somebody has a skin cancer, don't massage directly over the skin cancer. You want to be uh, careful and use light pressure over an area where there's cancer in the bones, either a primary or a metastasized cancer, let's say to the ribs or the vertebrae, because the cancer really erodes the bone, really compromises the integrity of the bone. And so you want to be gentle and, and don't deliver really deep pressure over somebody's rib cage if they have cancer in their ribs. 
there, there are things like that where you need to be aware and you need to modify. But massage in general, you can always find a part of the person's body to offer massage very safely and where it's going to feel really good. And maybe that's as simple as giving them a hand and foot massage. And just the feel good, beautiful touch, the, the kind nurturing touch that can be offered, the relaxation that goes such a long way to somebody's overall well-being during a very stressful time. And we shouldn't, we shouldn't shy away from how powerful and important that is in what we can offer people. Yeah, I think that a lot of time we can sometimes not understand the power of what we can do by being active listeners, understanding what the person might need from us and delivering that in a way that is safe for that individual. And they're allowed to either de-stress, maybe forget about things and all the things that they're going through for a temporary period of time. And offer them, offer them a very different kind of body experience because Otherwise, what their body is going through can be clinical, can be really uncomfortable. They're lying in an uncomfortable position for their radiation treatments every single day. Psychologically, I've had, I had one woman tell me that she cried through every single radiation treatment because she couldn't get past the idea to her that she was being cooked. Right. And was the radiation damaging her heart and her lungs and and those are potential risk factors. But yes, to your to your point, Connor, that that this is not just something that is being done to the tissues of somebody's bodies. This is a whole human experience. And it involves somebody's fears and their relationship with their body. In the case of breast cancer specifically, possibly it affects somebody's sense of their femininity and their sexuality and their role as a mother perhaps anticipated and potential if they're young or uh, in the past, if they're older and have already had children, there are so many aspects of someone's sense of themselves that cancer may touch on. And when somebody comes in for a massage, they're coming into a private room and they're lying comfortably on the table, they're warm, they're cozy, Maybe the lighting is dimmed, maybe there's soft music playing. Hopefully they have a really trusting relationship with the therapist because we know how important the therapeutic alliance is in, in successful outcomes. And they have an extended period of time. They have likely an hour in which they can relax and they can let their guard down and have some time feeling nurtured and cared for and safe. And maybe this allows them an opportunity for some other things to come up, some other emotions, some other things that they're experiencing. And maybe that's good for them just to have some time to process it. Sometimes people talk about it. Sometimes people don't, whatever they want to do in their time, it's, it's their, it's their time in the massage room. So yes, I think that that's really important. And that, the experience of having massage is so different than the few minutes with their oncologist or lying on the table receiving radi uh, radiation or sitting in the chair for hours with the pick line in their arm receiving chemotherapy. It's, it's a very different experience and so important that we can offer them that. Well, and I remember, I think it was two or three episodes ago, I was having a conversation with Tara Dinier and she was talking about how her sister had gone through breast cancer treatment and at the end of the, she was living in the U.S. 
And at the end of the treatment, you know, her treatment was done. She'd gone through months or weeks of treatment and her oncologist said something to the effect of like, okay, we'll see you in, I'm making this up, but six months, let's say. And the outcome of that was her sister just didn't know what to do then. She was just like, for this period of time, let's say it's been weeks to months, I've been going through this regimented type of treatment where I come in and I do all of this and then it's over. And then the guidance that I was given was, I'll follow up with you in, in six months. And I'm not saying that to knock the oncologist, as you've alluded to, the oncologist plays a very specific role. But if we can push this idea of collaborative care and these individuals are now in, in the care of someone like yourself, you can help guide them along that more drawn out recovery period because it's not like the chemo or the radiation ends and then it's over, right? There's so many, if you want to call them fallout effects of that, that might take more time. Mm -hmm. As you alluded to chest tightness, maybe they're going through reconstruction. Maybe they got cording. We'll talk about all these specific things as, as the show goes on, but I think that it allows the opportunity for maybe a softer landing, having someone that can then take over some of that care rather than it ending abruptly. Because I, I get the sense that in her case, she wasn't expecting that out of that appointment. Mm -hmm. She was just going for maybe she thought was a routine appointment. And then there'd be another one after that. And it was kind of like, okay, we're done. And then you know, that led to a lot of emotion, a lot of anxiety, a lot of fear, a lot of questions that maybe she didn't have an opportunity to get answered because she didn't have that expectation as the result of the, that being the appointment. Mm -hmm. You can, you've described that so well, Connor, you can just imagine how she might have felt suddenly abandoned, that her safety net was gone that she didn't have somebody to monitor her and just reassure her that everything was okay, that these things that she was experiencing. And as you said, sometimes the side effects to the treatment show up afterwards, mm -hmm. weeks, months after the treatment. I know people are hesitant. It's really difficult to get back in with the oncologist. They worry that they're making a big thing out of nothing. So if they have to make an appointment as opposed to just bringing something up at a regular appointment that they already have, that's harder to do. And I have noticed that I think the people that I work with do derive comfort and reassurance from the fact that I've worked with so many people. And, and there's, I think, very little that I haven't seen yet. So I can be reassuring that, yes, this is common. This is what we're going to do about it don't worry about it. This responds quite quickly. I'm, I'm completely confident that we can improve this. Or yes, many people feel that way. You're certainly not alone. And it's just a, a place to yeah bring stuff up in a non-pressured way. It's not like the clock is ticking the way it is when you're in an appointment with your doctor who is so busy. And I don't in any way mean to knock oncologists. It's just a different place in, in the treatment it's just the reality of that portion of care. It's, yes. It's just that is how that care is delivered, rightly or wrongly. That is just the reality of that care. As you alluded to, no one's knocking the oncologist here. They do you know, amazing things. It's just 
that care often, I would argue, needs to continue to allow that landing to be a little bit, mm-hmm. to happen a little more softly. And the other thing too, as you alluded to, is a lot of the time the person on your table will ask you, have you seen this before? Or have you treated this before? If the answer to that is yes, or I've treated something very similar, and this is how it's resolved, it offers them some comfort mm-hmm. about maybe the trajectory of the path that they're about to go on, right? If you're saying, oh, generally speaking, in my experience, this was, you know, take into account that everybody's different, but this might take a little bit more time in my experience, or this we hope to resolve a little bit more quickly. They have an expectation. The expectation's been set. And then you can continue to follow up and have these conversations around it. Mm-hmm. The other question that I had for you, Susan, was just about the different stages of care. And we've talked a little bit kind of informally about them, but from diagnosis to active cancer treatment to remission to the unfortunate circumstance of the return of the disease in cases. Could you speak a little bit to that and how you see that in your practice and maybe the nuances or the differences between the stages that that person is going through? Sure. Generally speaking, and of course it does depend on the type of cancer and the stage of that cancer and that particular individual. But generally speaking, let's say that the treatment for cancer will last about a year. It generally starts with surgery. If somebody is going to receive chemotherapy, that comes next. Although sometimes the chemotherapy is first before the surgery in order to shrink the tumor so that it can be more successfully or more easily excised surgically. And then the radiation, if somebody is going to have radiation. And then following that might be hormone therapy or immunotherapy uh, for a longer term. And so you're looking at approximately a year. And each of those treatments has its own difficulties and challenges and, and possible side effects. And it is really the side effects of the treatment that I'm working with Um, as a massage therapist. In the case of breast cancer, if somebody's going to have reconstruction and if it's not done immediately, if it's not uh, mastectomy with immediate reconstruction, then that takes somebody into possibly a second year with a reconstructive surgery, a revision surgery to that about a year after that. So it can be a really long time in, in somebody's life with a lot of really difficult things. And then what I've noticed is if somebody is diagnosed with lymphedema, that can be a real blow because the cancer diagnosis is hard, definitely, but people kind of steal themselves and say, I'm going to get through this. This is going to be this much time. And then they, they, they get through it. Maybe the lymphedema diagnosis comes sooner. Maybe it comes much later, but then they are diagnosed with what they find out is a chronic progressive condition that they're going to have to manage for the rest of their lives. And this isn't, there's no end date on this. And so that can be psychologically very difficult. There's no leaving this behind now and moving on with their life. How long after treatment can lymphedema present itself? Like what would be the longest window, I guess, well, arguably, it could onset could be any time afterwards, because once somebody has had lymph nodes removed and they've had radiation, the lymphatic system is compromised. And so they're at risk of developing lymphedema at any time. 
I was going to say, I've noticed in the time that I've been working with people diagnosed with breast cancer that the lymphedema that they experience is much milder. And I think that's because of the ability to identify the sentinel lymph nodes. So it used to be the doctors would go in and would take out many axillary lymph nodes. So I would meet people who had had 15, 20, maybe even 25 lymph nodes removed. And remember, there's only 30 to 50 in the um, axillary area to begin with. So somebody might have had half or more of their lymph nodes removed. Now the doctors are able to identify the sentinel lymph nodes, that is the two, three, maybe four lymph nodes that the tumor drains to. They biopsy, they remove those and biopsy them. If there are cancer cells in the sentinel lymph nodes, then more lymph nodes are removed. If there are no cancer cells in the sentinel lymph nodes, then that's it. And so somebody can complete the treatment and they've had two, three, maybe four lymph nodes removed. Maybe they've had radiation, maybe they haven't. But in other words, the impact on their lymphatic system is minimal. And so the lymphedema that they may develop is much milder than it used to be, I think. And also perhaps, perhaps, I can't say this with certainty, perhaps more specific to the breast area and where the tumor was than generically in the whole arm or the, the trunk. But I'm not, I'm not sure that I can say that. That's just based on observations and wonder on my part. Right. So it appears as the treatment for breast cancer gets more accurate, the potential fallout with respect to lymphedema becomes less, potentially. Yes. Due to this procedure that you just described. Yes. And similarly with the targeted radiation where the doctors may implant, oh, I forget what it's called. Like a radioactive pellet? Yes. Instead of a wide beam radiation, which delivers radiation to an area, the radiation field. And then there's the potential for damage to other non-involved parts of the body. And I mentioned earlier, radiation may damage the heart and the lungs and the ribs when trying to treat breast cancer. But with the radioactive pellets, they're placed very specifically around where the cancer is. And so the radiation is very specific and targeted and therefore the fallout is less, I would imagine. Right. So we've talked, we've used this word a lot, lymphedema. What is lymphedema? Lymphedema is swelling of a body part caused by a compromised lymphatic system. And there are two categories of lymphedema, primary lymphedema when somebody is born with a compromised lymphatic system. And onset of the swelling is usually in early adulthood, say the 20s and the 30s, but may appear in childhood and may also appear later and can be unilateral or bilateral. Secondary lymphedema is when the swelling is because the lymphatic system is damaged through some kind of trauma. For example, cancer treatment when lymph nodes are removed and radiation damages the lymphatic system. Or if there's some massive trauma to the body in an accident, major lacerations, major burns, um, that kind of thing. I mean, I have patients with lymphedema who, I'm thinking of one woman in particular, has never been diagnosed with cancer, but she's had some major gynecologic trauma and surgeries, and she has lymphedema in one leg. Um, so those are the two kinds of lymphedema and the lymphedema isn't going to go away on its own. It does need to be managed. Sometimes it's mild and it's very easily managed and it doesn't really progress and get worse very much. Sometimes it does. And so I, I tell people that it's kind of like having diabetes. 
you just need to get into the routine of being aware of changes in your body and what for you are risk factors that may or may not cause a bit of a flare up and do what you need to do to manage it. And you can certainly live the life that you want to and that you did before. It doesn't have to be something that really prohibits you from engaging in activities. But for some people, if they ignore the lymphedema, it does progress and it can become very complicated and, and quite severe and have a large impact on their life. So we manage lymphedema through the four pillars of combined decongestive therapy are manual lymph drainage, compression, and compression bandaging we use to reduce the volume of an area. And then we get somebody fitted for a compression garment that maintains that smaller size and exercises to help create that internal muscle pump and help the body move fluid out of an area and skincare is important. So those are the four things that we, we do to help people. Um, there's a lot of patient education that we do to help people be independent and self-sufficient. So some people learn to bandage their own arm or their own leg and they do it beautifully and they learn to do lymph lymphatic drainage on themselves. And I've seen some people whose, whose limbs are in incredible shape. And then other people who, uh, lymphedema in the legs, I think because of gravity can, can often be worse. And then it becomes kind of a circular thing. You know, you have lymphedema, uh, it's difficult to move. There may be obesity as a, as a comorbidity, which also makes it difficult to move. There are skin changes, people get ulcers and they're at risk for infection. I mean, there's, there's sort of this, this circle of things and at what point do you go in and try and, and break that circle to try and, and start some improvement? Yeah, so there are different ways that we can work with people and offer help. How do you describe the lymphatic system to people? We've got lymphedema that is this, we'll just call it swelling. And just to add clarity, that can happen for, we've, we've talked about a lot about breast cancer thus far, but lymphedema can happen for a number of reasons. I think you alluded to that at the top of the show. But uh, how do you, I'm just curious, how do you describe the lymphatic system to people when they ask? That's a great question. I say that the lymphatic system and the cardiovascular system work in tandem and make up the body's circulatory system. And the cardiovascular system is a loop where the heart pumps oxygenated blood down to the body and deoxygenated blood back up to the body. And at the end of that, the oxygenated blood has gone down through the arteries and then the smaller arterioles and then the tiny, tiny little capillaries. And at the end of that loop, fluid and substances are pushed through the walls of the capillary into the tissue. And that's where the lymphatic system comes into play. And the lymphatic system is a one-way system and it draws fluid and substances out of the tissue draws it up through the lymphatic vessels, through the lymph nodes where it is cleaned and filtered. And then in the neck, just above the collarbone, that's the terminus or the end of the lymphatic system. And at that point, the cleaned lymph is put back into the blood vessels. And so that's how the two of them work hand in hand. That then leads me into, because the lymphatic system is just a one-way system and there is no pump pushing the fluid through the vessels, this then explains why we perform manual lymph drainage in the order in which we do, that we always start with the neck, the terminus, and we are always directing up, but we work down the body. So if somebody has swelling in their foot and leg, you don't start at the foot. 
trying to push the fluid up the body, up the leg. And I use the analogy of cars stopped at a red light and the cars at the end of that line can't get going until the cars at the front of the line get going. And so we'll stimulate the lymphatic system in the neck. And then there's, we, of course, you take the health history and you learn about what's happened in their body. So I'm not going to go into where you direct, but then if we, when we're down at the leg, you need to start stimulating the lymphatic system at the top of the thigh. And then you go down a little bit, you're always directing up, but then you move the next car in the line and then you go down the leg. And so, so understanding how the lymphatic system works then makes sense of why we perform the lymph drainage the way that we do. I like that car analogy. I'm going to steal it from you. (laughs) Thanks. It works for people. It, it makes sense to people. So really what we're talking about when we talk about lymphedema is fluid management, the inability of a part of the body to manage that fluid and the potential symptoms and fallout of that. Yes. Great. You describe that, and you've used this word a couple of times, manual lymph drainage as well. And for those individuals that are listening and certainly add to it what you need to, Susan, but... I'll describe it as a very light touch technique, and then I'll let you take over. Okay, sure. Um, Yes, I often, when I'm trying to differentiate for people the difference between a Swedish massage, where we are looking to engage with the muscles and with the deeper tissues in the body, the lymph drainage does feel very light. I will sometimes use a more heavy-handed approach with lymphedema, depending on what I'm feeling, one of the physiological changes that can occur due to the lymph stasis is fibrosis, where the tissue in the area of swelling starts to feel a little bit thicker, a little bit sludgy. It can start to get harder. It can be very hard, like hard like wood. And this is a problem because the hardening tissue becomes itself a barrier to the drainage. And so If you have fibrosis, it worsens the lymphedema, which worsens the fibrosis, which worsens the lymphedema. The good news is the fibrosis responds very quickly to deeper, more specific little circle type movements. And so it's imperative that you address the fibrosis as well as offering lymph drainage. So depending on what I'm feeling in the person's body determines how light or heavy handed I am in the drainage or I might do some very, some light lymph drainage proximal to the area of fibrosis and then do some deeper, more specific work. The analogy I use for the fibrosis, particularly when I'm trying to teach people how to, how to do it on themselves, is I say, imagine this is an area of frozen butter. And by massaging all around the outside of blob of frozen butter, you're going to soften the edges and work deeper and deeper into the middle of this frozen butter. And that idea of kind of softening the butter, of of changing it from something hard to something malleable, and then something possibly even soft and liquidy that you can just, that you can move away. It, It seems to be an image that people can grasp. And they're really relieved to hear that, yes, this is a problem. This is a complication to the lymphedema, but it's not a problem because I know that it will, we'll start to see changes quickly and we can resolve this. And when we do, there will be an improvement in the swelling. And I've seen people go down in size tremendously as we resolve lymphedema. 
the uh, fibrosis, sorry, specifically within the lymphedema. So you would say fibrosis is a primary concern when present more so than the lymphedema? Well, it's part of the lymphedema and it does need to be addressed. You can't, can't just use a really feather light touch because that's not going to adequately address the fibrosis. So you need to be heavier handed and, and more specific. I tend to use the tips of my thumbs, the tips of my fingers and try and soften that fibrosis rather than a broad handed pressure to soften the fibrosis. One of the things that I know you're quite passionate about is the use of evidence-based and collaborative care and in your clinical practice. And I don't really know a lot about the evidence around manual lymph drainage. I'm wondering if you can speak to that and where that's at in terms of anything that you're looking at from a, a research perspective. Sure. The evidence is not strong in support of manual lymph drainage. Okay. The evidence is not strong in support of manual <laughs> lymph drainage. Um, that's the reality. And yes, I do think it's really important that we are evidence-based so this is something that I struggle with because I know that, that what, I, what I'm about to say now, people can poo-poo and shoot down because they'll say anecdote, anecdote. <laughs> right. It is really hard to reconcile what I see in clinic with what the evidence says. As far as I'm aware, there have been three systematic reviews of research into manual lymph drainage. Most recently, I think something came out in 2021 or 2022, and I did look at it at the time. And I was a little disappointed. And this speaks to the research that is out there. And the problem with attaching ourselves too heavily to to evidence. Mm -hmm. It all depends on the evidence, right? On the, on the research that's being conducted. The systematic review talked about there was too much heterogeneity between the studies that had been included in the systematic review to draw firm conclusions. Very often it seems that manual lymph drainage is an intervention combined with another intervention such as compression or such as exercise and is not looked at in isolation. So how can you adequately determine the effect of the manual lymph drainage? Another problem that I see more with massage in general, so maybe I'm going off the path here a little bit, but I find that often exactly how it is administered, it's not described in detail. What is the duration? What is the frequency? There's going to be an individual difference between practitioners in how they administer the manual lymph drainage. And I know that that's true for all manual therapies, but we've just talked about even on the same person will employ different levels of depth or firmness, depending on what I feel and what I see in the lymphedema. And so you've got and the subjects in these studies, how, what, how similar are all of these subjects in terms of the stage of lymphedema, in terms of the existence or non-existence of, of fibrosis within their lymphedema? There's so many variables here. It's really hard to draw general conclusions about the effectiveness. And then when I see that sometimes the lymph drainage can be incredibly effective at reducing the volume in reducing the fibrosis, then, then it's hard to say, well, there's no evidence in support of lymph drainage. I think this most recent systematic review left things sort of open-ended and said more research needs to be done. How would you like to see the research be done? 
Oh my goodness, that's a huge question. Not one that I feel particularly prepared to answer because okay. I'm not a researcher and I don't have experience designing research studies. I do wanna just add though that another important thing to bear in mind, sometimes before there is a measurable increase in the size of somebody's arm or leg, let's say, and I'm using those examples because circumferential measurement is easy to take as opposed to lymphedema in the trunk or somewhere where it's a little harder to measure. Sometimes before there is a measurable increase, people will report feelings of heaviness, achiness, perhaps tingling. So they are experiencing symptoms that you can ascribe to the lymphedema, even though there is no objective measurement. So the only way you can measure improvement then is on the patient report. I do remember this most recent systematic review in its conclusion or its discussion section towards the end said something about disregarding the patient's experiences. And we do also, in addition to being evidence-based practitioners, we also have to be patient-centered. Mm -hmm. And how dare we disregard somebody's experience? Mm -hmm. If they're reporting symptoms that we objectively can't see or measure, they're talking about what they feel, then how can we measure the improvement of those symptoms? And if you're talking about how somebody feels and how it, how it affects their ability to move and go about their activities, it feels heavy or achy and they feel worse after they've done a lot of activity, like they were outside gardening for two hours at the beginning of the spring and, and they love gardening and this is interfering with how comfortable they feel continuing with this activity that they love. Who are we to say that, that the lymphatic drainage didn't help? If mm -hmm. they say that it helped, that's the important thing. Well, and I guess the mechanisms by which that helped from a physiological standpoint are up for debate as well, right? Yes, I think that there's a lot across the board with manual therapy. There's a lot of times we don't completely understand the mechanisms and, yeah. and we're theorizing or we think that we've understood the mechanism and then new research casts some doubt on that. And so then we're trying to better understand the mechanism I have these discussions a lot with other therapists and some people just feel that they don't really need to bog themselves down with the mechanisms. And they certainly don't need to bog down the patients with the mechanisms. A lot of patients don't really care, but the mm -hmm. patients are concerned with, I'm concerned about this issue. I've come to you for help. Do you think you can help me? Yes. Let's give this a try. Yes. I feel some improvement or We've given that a good go. It hasn't really helped. So thanks very much. I'm going to move on and try something else. Mm -hmm. And that's fair enough. Yeah, I think the pendulum's coming back towards the middle. I think it swung over the last five or 10 years really far towards looking at the mechanisms of manual therapy. From what I see, again, just anecdotally, I think it's coming back towards the middle where we recognize that there's bodies of research looking at mechanisms but it's also equally as important to look at things like psychology, social factors, access to care, etc. Last episode, when I was having a discussion with uh, Dr. Dimitri Asimakopoulos, he mentioned this scenario that I'd never really considered before, where you know a lot of the time we talk about psychosocial factors as one thing. When you hear people speak, they speak often that word psychosocial. And he was talking about a patient of his that had chronic back pain and he was in the gym with them and he was saying to them, 
you're acting as though you're scared to lift this weight that I've asked you to lift. And the woman said, I'm not scared. My family members don't allow me to lift things around the house. And so I've developed this kind of social restraint around lifting, not because I'm scared, but because others have put this label on me. I've kind of lost my train of thought where I'm going with the story, but um, I think that understanding all of the elements of what a person is going through potentially may be more important than the mechanisms by which the hands-on approach that I am doing and the, you know, if I'm thinking about, if I'm sitting there doing lymphatic drainage and I'm like thinking about the physiology of what's going on, are there better ways to make my treatment valuable and helpful through looking through the lens of psychology and, and social barriers? I guess my point of that story, sorry, was that from that little analogy, everyone that comes into my practice, I ask them about their partners and their support systems. And do they, I ask them the question of, do they feel as though they're having sort of the reins held on them by someone in their life, even though their intent is positive, that may be holding them back. Like that's a question that I never have really asked people before. I've always asked about support systems and having people involved in this supportive care. But through that interaction, you know, continuing to try to look at the person's experience as the totality of everything rather than truly the mechanisms by what I'm doing manually. I think that's where I'm going with this long-winded answer. <laughs> I, I feel as though I've been able to come to a more well-rounded place, I guess. And I was very you know, I am very interested in these mechanisms just out of interest sake, but how, how much does that help me truly in my day-to-day -day interactions? I am so glad that you brought this up, Connor. And I love this. And I think that your, your point is spot on in treating the whole person. Again, we hear these terms, they get bandied about, but what does it really mean? In treating the whole person, we are not only interacting and engaging manually with their tissue, but we are engaging with everything that they bring to this experience. Their fears, their fears about the prognosis, the history, what they have personally experienced in terms of their health, what they have witnessed other people experience, perhaps with the same condition. Did that person recover quickly? Was it debilitating? What are they anticipating about the treatment and how that's going to feel? Um, how does this affect their sense of their self? There are, all of these are completely legitimate and sometimes very large contributors to the success or the lack of success of the outcomes. And certainly in chronic pain, all of these, the contextual factors as they're called are hugely important. And I love this example that you gave from your most recent podcast with the doctor's patient talking about these social restraints from the family and yes, 100% well-intentioned. And it makes me think about your comment earlier about the sister of somebody else you interviewed whose oncologist suddenly said, okay, thanks very much. See you in six months. And she was left reeling like, wait a minute. Well, 
well, who's got me? Like, who's holding me and watching me and monitoring me and helping me? And this is where I think things like Toronto Rehab. Toronto Rehab has cardio programs. It has a breast cancer program. My mom went through their cardio program after she had a heart attack. So I can speak from what I saw her go through and how I felt as her daughter. My mom had a heart attack, a mild heart attack 12 years ago. And naturally afterwards, you're really worried that the heart has been weakened, that physical activity is going to be too much too soon. And so for us as her family members, and also for my mom to be in this weekly program, she went one morning a week. It was physiotherapists, physiatrists, uh, exercise physiologists, did an assessment on, on every participant put together an exercise program for them where they gradually, under the supervision of these experts, gradually increased the speed with which they walked, the duration of their walks, when they incorporated hills into their walks, the gradient of the hill, how many hills, and strength training as well, which is so important. And so we felt like we could just relax because my mom was in good hands and was doing the appropriate exercise at the right time. And then the program also brings in other experts to talk about stress management and nutrition and other aspects of health that can affect somebody's cardiovascular health. Toronto Rehab has a very similar program for people who've been through treatment for breast cancer. So again, it's about helping people regain range of motion at the shoulder, regain their strength, be aware of their cardiovascular health, because perhaps the chemotherapy and the radiation, or even just, you know, being out of commission for so many weeks has, they're, they're deconditioned. And so it's the same thing where people are monitored and supervised by experts, and they are held week by week as they progress. And I think that that is so important. But I just love what you said about and this is something that I think we forget. It's too easy to think that we are just working with the tissues in somebody's body and we are not because somebody's emotional, psychological experiences are going to impact how they feel in their body and how they move in their body and how they feel the physical recovery is progressing or not progressing. And so we do need to try and create space for these fears and these questions, for someone to voice what they are anticipating, what their expectations are, are those expectations being met or are they feeling let down and disappointed? There has to be space for that because that's part of the whole person and part of the person's experience. Mm -hmm. I feel like I have this conversation every podcast, but it's a great conversation to unpack <laughs> with different people. And I, I think that that question that I now ask all of the time was one of those questions or one of those things in your career where you're like, why wasn't I asking this question for the first decade? It's such a simple question of, do you feel as though anyone in your immediate circle is holding you back when you don't feel as though you need to be? Mm -hmm. And since asking that question in the, you know, that podcast only aired two weeks ago. And so for the past two weeks, every new intake gets that question the number of people that answer yes to that question. And then we unpack that a little bit and have that discussion around, you know, if it's an example of my partner doesn't want me to go out and garden 
and they really want to garden and gardening makes them feel better, but they've got this, these reins held on them. I can allow the two of them to be in the appointment and sort of gently massage that idea for lack of a better word with the two of them and say, let's just try gardening this weekend for a little bit and see how you do. And it's just one of those, one of those kind of aha moments you have in your career where you're like, why wasn't I actively asking this question? But that's why I do these podcasts so I can learn for free. (laughs) And can I ask you, Connor, how have you felt, how comfortable have you felt delving into this perhaps more personal or more private aspect of your, of your patient's life? Is it, has it been a little bit uncomfortable for you as a new question or a new topic to bring up with your patients? I don't think so. I think mainly because I do ask quite in-depth questions about other psychosocial factors related to, because a lot of my work is in concussion, I do feel like I spend a lot of time around different things and their activities of daily living and goal setting and such. So I feel pretty comfortable in asking the question. I'm just surprised by the answers that I get, quite frankly. Mm -hmm. I didn't think that it would be such a common response of yes. Yes. And as you said, it's that restraint is placed on somebody by their family members with the best of intentions. It's because because our family members are so precious to us and so important, we don't we don't want anything to happen to them. Mm-hmm. But sometimes our intentions can have an adverse effect. Mm-hmm. We know from research into chronic pain, and I'm sure this applies across all health conditions, how important it is that people are able to continue to engage in the activities that are meaningful to them. Mm-hmm. And so your example of gardening, gardening is so therapeutic for so many people. They're outside. They're feeling the earth in their hands. They're nurturing something. They're watching it grow. It's very satisfying. So to have that taken away from somebody can really affect the quality of their life. And what we should be doing is helping people identify what activities and what relationships are the most meaningful to them and then helping them continue to engage in them perhaps in a modified way, if that's necessary, perhaps initially modified. And then our goal is to help them progress and work back up to where they used to be. But we shouldn't just be taking things away from people. No, definitely not. I think that, as you alluded to, the more normalcy they can keep within their life, even if it's, you know, you have to reduce time or you have to reduce intensity, speaking to whether it be the persistent or chronic pain population, or even individuals going through cancer care, having individuals that were really active pre-injury or pre-disease. And then I remember this patient of mine years ago came in, he was in his nineties, like his mid nineties and in great shape, was active every day of his adult life, would do weight training in the morning, structured cardiovascular exercise in the morning. And that was just active. He was just an active individual. He'd play pickleball. He'd play, you know, he had all these different social groups and he came in with shoulder pain and I'd seen him for other stuff in the past and his right shoulder was sore. And I think he had come in with an ultrasound that showed a tear of something like a small, 
maybe supraspinatus or infraspinatus tear, something that we would see in a vast majority of the population, not just of his age, but of any age. And the clinician that he had been seeing had said, stop everything. You can't play pickleball. You can't work out anymore. You can't, he used to hike with hiking poles. You can't use your hiking poles. And I asked him, how does that make you feel? And he just started crying. And I said to him, you know, we finished up the appointment and I said, okay, so tomorrow I want you to weight train and I want you to go hiking and I want you to readopt some of these behaviors. And he said, oh, you think I'll be okay with that? And I said, you are 95 years old and you to date are the most active in shape 95 year old I've ever met. And I think you're doing something right. And I think you should continue to do it. And if it hurts a little bit, see if you can modify or take one element of that out, but let's not scrap the whole thing. And he was asymptomatic in two or three weeks after that conversation. Amazing. And so allowing people to, it, it might not be completely the same, but any degree of normalcy, and I'm sure you can speak to this in the population that you serve, any degree of normalcy and routine that many people are routine oriented can go a very long way. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. How wonderful that you, you gave him permission and you gave him reassurance. Sometimes do you, do you feel that, again, going back to the hierarchy, our perceived hierarchy of the, of the medical system, um, that people think, well, the doctor said, what does this RMT know? <laughs> and, it, and it can be difficult for people, too, to receive different advice from different people. I think it's wonderful that you had that conversation with that patient and, and encouraged him to go back. That just makes me, if I could tell another quick story, that makes me laugh about, I can't remember what I was seeing this person for, but they went to their family doctor and this individual said, I'm seeing, I don't know if they use my name, but I'm seeing a therapist up the street for X condition. It was something like shoulder pain or something like that. And he just said, he said, uh, you may as well just go to the, the LCBO and buy a 26 or Jack Daniels. Cause it'll be about as good as seeing him. Oh no. I laughed because I saw the, the humor in it, the ignorance in the, the individual that was making this claim, but it was just like, I don't know how you get away with saying that to someone that's in your care about another healthcare provider. But, uh, this person was just like, yeah, I'm just going to keep seeing you. I see, I see benefit in what you do. So, you know, there's still that type of stuff and, Thank ego, goodness. you know, ego can get in the way sometimes in what we do, but that's okay. I, I thought it was a humorous story. Well, I'm glad that you can laugh <laughs> about it. Yeah. I wanted to talk to you about, you'd mentioned those four pillars of, was it manual lymph drainage? Or four pillars of, sorry, lymphedema. Uh, the four pillars, yeah, the four pillars of combined decongestive therapy, which is uh, how we manage lymphedema. 
if we could, I just want to talk a little bit about the compressive therapies that you often use as an adjunct to some of the other stuff that you do. And if you could speak to the importance of those in terms of symptom management, and if you see a difference in bandaging versus compressive garments, I don't know if you see a difference in those two. Um, if you could speak to that, that'd be great. Yes. The compression is a very important part of managing lymphedema. And I think that the research supports that quite strongly. I differentiate between compression bandaging, which I use to reduce uh, the size of this, the volume of the swelling. And then compression garments are to maintain that smaller size. And the reason in the difference is because the bandaging can be reapplied so that as the limb shrinks, you keep reapplying so that the bandaging is snug and, and applying the same amount of inward pressure. That's a general statement. Mm -hmm. And in our training also, we are taught that in an ideal scenario, an ideal treatment plan, somebody comes in, we do an intensive reduction phase with bandaging and, and more frequent lymph drainage. And then we move to a maintenance phase where then it's just about trying to maintain that smaller size and not let the area become more swollen. So with the bandaging, there's um, the traditional short stretch bandaging, which has a little bit of stretch to it uh, for lymphedema. And it's a multi-layer system. So there'll be a cotton stockinette that goes over the skin first and then some foam or cotton batten for comfort and then several layers of the short stretch bandage. And some people learn how to apply that themselves and they can do it beautifully. It's amazing to see somebody bandage their own arm. <laughs> yeah, I bet. <laughs> um, but most people don't learn how to do that. And so that's something that we do for them. It's cumbersome because you can't, you can't move your arm as well. You can't bend your wrist and your elbow as well. And you can't get wet and your clothes don't fit over because you've got this big bulky bandage on. So that's also why it's sort of a short-term thing. It's, it's, look, let's just, we're going to do this right. Let's bandage, get you down, get you fitted for a garment. The other kind of, oh, but I will say investing in the short stretch bandages is expensive. The advantage is you wash and reuse them. So then you have your set of bandages. They don't last forever, obviously. They do lose their elasticity, but you've got them for, depending on how often you use them, several months, maybe a few years. And then there's something like Coban wrap, which is a disposable bandage. So it can't be reused. You have to cut it off and put it in the garbage. And so somebody where, because of how bandaging affects someone's day-to-day -day life, we're not going to try and reduce as much as possible. Instead, we're going to say, okay, we're going to do one round of Coban. So I'm going to apply the Coban bandage. You're going to leave it on for three, four, maybe five days. You're going to coordinate an appointment with the fitter. And the fitter is going to cut off the Coban, immediately measure you for your compression garment. It might take a couple of weeks for that garment to arrive because they're usually made in Germany. And so just before or just after the garment arrives, we might have to do another round of Coban to shrink you back down to that size again, and then you've got your garment. In Ontario, there's the um, ADP fund, the assisted device program. So that's a provincial government funding program. It does pay for compression garments for lymphedema, and it will pay for 75% of two sets of garments. So there's always one set to wear and one set to wash. And the patient 
can get new garments every four months. And so if we're not going to say we're going to bandage, bandage, bandage until we think we've got you as small as it is possible to get you, because that's just not convenient for the person's life. Instead, we do it in kind of a stepped phase where we say, let's bandage you once, get you fitted. And then in four months when you go back and it's time to be fitted for your next set of garments, we're going to bandage you again and we're going to try and get you a little bit smaller and you'll be fitted for a smaller garment and in that way. And it's just a little easier to accommodate into someone's life. That is the distinction between compression bandaging and compression garments, roughly speaking. There are other compression garments that are made of Velcro and they're advantageous because they're much easier to put on. The compression stockings, which usually have to have a higher level of compression, and then depending on how agile and flexible and strong the person is, it can be extremely difficult to get a compression stocking on all the way up to the top of the thigh. And there are devices that can help somebody put it on and they work kind of okay and kind of not. So a device that is made of Velcro straps and so it's really easy to slip on because it's large. And then from the bottom up, the person puts on one Velcro strap really snugly and then the other really snugly and they work their way up the leg, that's much easier for them to do by themselves. That also has the advantage that if there are fluctuations in the size of their leg, given that that's our example, then they can do up the Velcro straps more snugly and accommodate the smaller size so that the leg doesn't fill up again with fluid and, and swell up. So there are variations between, it's not quite a stark distinction, not as stark as I made it out between bandaging and garments. What is the average compression used in a sock versus a arm garment? As a general rule, and again, there are going to be all kinds of variabilities here, but a sleeve might be 20 to 30 millimeters of mercury and a stocking might be 30 to 40. Okay. There is a 50 to 60. It's so hard to put on. I've even seen uh, not full leg stockings, but I've seen socks upwards of 60 and and they're stiff and hard and heavy and really inflexible and extremely difficult. They get all bunched up and how do you unbunch it and pull it up the leg? I mean, I've had people tell me that it takes, I had uh, an elderly woman tell me it took her and her husband 45 minutes every morning to get her compression stocking on. Well, that was my question. Does the issue of compliance ever come up with that? Like just people don't want to do it. How I've had some you know, very few people over the years that have, that are wearing them. And some of them have expressed that they're just very uncomfortable for them to wear as a result of that. They don't, um, do you see kind of compliance being a, an issue to navigate? Yes. Yes. Uh, for those reasons, because they're difficult to take on and off because they're uncomfortable because they're hot, because they're ugly, because people feel self-conscious and they don't want somebody to know that they've got this issue. They don't want people to ask, why are you wearing that thick stocking? Right. Fortunately with, um, compression sleeves, there are some companies that are making them in wonderful colors and have beautiful designs. And, and I think some people also just feel like, I'm just not going to worry about it. I heard a wonderful story from a therapist in the lymphedema clinic in Princess Margaret Hospital who talked about a time when they were they were having, this was before the pandemic, it was an in-person support group. 
And one woman was saying she just didn't want to wear her compression sleeve because she felt so self-conscious wearing it and everybody could see and blah, 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 blah. It was this constant advertisement that she had been through breast cancer or people wondered what was with this thing. And another woman just said, get over it. And apparently that coming from another patient who had been through the same experience and was in the same place, hearing that from another patient, get over it, was enough for that woman to go, yeah, okay, yeah, I hear you. Whereas sometimes it's not appropriate for us as therapists because we're not in that place. Right. It's not appropriate for us to say, for God's sake, get over it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It would be very easy for us to say that having not gone through some of this, yeah. you know, the roller coaster that they would have gone through. Yeah, I thought that story was so interesting. And it, it does say something about, I don't know, the authority that different people have depending on what place they're speaking from. Right. And the relationship and what is what can come into play in different relationships. But yes, to go back to your question, compliance can be an issue and it's and it's unfortunate. And I also totally get it. And, you know, following treatment for breast cancer or melanoma for, for that matter, if somebody's had a melanoma on their back or their arm and they've had lymph nodes removed from the axilla and radiation to the area, can also experience lymphedema in the trunk, the side of the trunk underneath the armpit. As I said, with breast cancer, sometimes people will get lymphedema within the breast itself. So there are lymphedema compression vests. I don't know anybody who finds those comfortable. They're really uncomfortable. They're unattractive. So there we try and come up with something that might work. And so we say, well, can you find a sports bra that's going to be really snug? And we talk about what, depending on that person, what they need to look for. Maybe they need something that is cut quite high up into the armpit. If it's cut low underneath the armpit, then you get this spillover of swelling above the garment. That's not helpful. Maybe you can find a really snug Spanx camisole that is going to provide that compression around the trunk. Sometimes we'll, you can buy um, gray foam that's ribbed on one side. And so I have that in my clinic. Um, it's something I don't charge. I just give them, cut a piece of the foam and say, lay this against the side of the trunk where the swelling is, rib side against your skin, because then it provides some channels that just helps, is some texture. Mm -hmm. As you move, it provides a little bit of massage. It provides a little, some channels to help direct the fluid. Wear that against the swelling. It's a bit of spot compression. Make sure you're wearing something really snug that is going to hold it in place. We can use K-tape. Apply the K-tape, say, on a 60% stretch. A few strips of that can also provide some spot compression. People like that because it's not bulky. It doesn't mm -hmm. interfere with what they want to wear. Nobody can see it under their clothes. It's not hot. It can get wet in the shower. You can leave it on for several days. So there are other things that we can do. And it's, and it's a matter of trying different things and finding what's going to work for that person. And maybe they employ all of these different devices, depending on the time of the year, what they're wearing, what activities they're engaging in, how their lymphedema is fluctuating. Are they in a bit of a flare up and they need to do a bit more to help manage it? Maybe things are better and they can ease off a little bit, some of their management strategies. So when I say, when I said earlier that it's something that people always have to be aware of their body and they have to manage their lymphedema, this is part of the management. It's not just a cookie cutter treatment plan. Here's your stuff, now go. 
it's something that you you modify as you go. The uh, the foam pad ones neat. I haven't heard that one before. So thank you for that. And you can also buy different shaped compression pads that are shaped to accommodate different parts of the body where swelling more commonly occurs. So there are those as well. Some people get creative and they and they make their own compression garments. One thing for the fibrosis that can also be helpful is is making something with chip foam because it's that uneven texture. And so it's providing that sort of point specific pressure. And then as you move, the point where the pressure is uh, deployed changes a little bit. So it's sort of like a constant little massage over the area as you move. Right. So speaking of that, we, we've talked a lot about swelling. And one of the things I wanted to ask you about was cording or axillary web syndrome. That's probably something that we haven't really talked about specifically yet. And I know it is a common side effect. So I'd love to get your thoughts on just maybe a brief overview of what that is and how you see it in your practice. Yes. Cording is a complication that is common after treatment for breast cancer. And it's not well understood exactly what's happening within the body, going back to our conversation about mechanisms, but what it looks like and what it feels like is the person might say that they feel this tightness, this pulling when they raise their arm. And maybe the tightness and pulling is just in the upper arm into the armpit. Maybe as they raise their arm, they can feel the pulling and the tightness all the way down to the wrist, into the palm. That depends. Sometimes it also extends down the trunk. And in that case, it's referred to as Mondor's cords. Sometimes you can visibly see cords. And sometimes it's a very thin cord, like a pencil lead. Sometimes it's a thicker rope. It's associated with uh, surgery. And so it it often seems to be tethered uh, on either side, maybe just into one side, maybe on both sides of the surgical incision, perhaps the lumpectomy or where the, the sentinel lymph nodes are removed. So the incision within the axilla. And it can be very uncomfortable, even painful. And it does actually limit, it may actually limit the range of motion where a woman is unable to fully raise her arm. And the way we address that is manipulating the tissue in as many different ways and directions as we can, sometimes employing, I like to use the silicone cups because that can help lift the tissue up. I like to put people in a position that makes the tissue taut And so I may have them raise their arm, straighten their elbow, extend the wrist at the same time that I'm manipulating that tissue along the cord. Sometimes during that treatment, you suddenly hear a snap or a pop. And people assure me it is not painful at all. And instead, it's immediate relief. Hmm. Immediately, that feeling of tightness is, is gone or greatly lessened. They can raise their arm higher. Sometimes there's no sudden change like that. Instead, people will come back and say, you know, I noticed the other day that I'm moving my arm and I can raise my arm higher and I'm using it more and I don't feel that same tightness. And funnily enough, sometimes people are almost disappointed because they wanted that sudden snap or pop. (laughs) Um, Of course, the other can happen too, where people have heard that there can be this snap or pop and people are afraid that you know, that the the tissue is actually breaking or snapping or popping. And so there can be some, I don't want that to happen. So it can work both ways. Um, But honestly, every single person has told me it is not painful. 
the SNAP, instead it is immediate relief. And usually then it lasts. Sometimes the cording comes back. Sometimes we're not able to completely eradicate it. That this is unfortunately part of the lasting effects of the cancer treatment that the person always, they might have completely full range of motion, but they feel tightness on that side and they don't feel it on the unaffected side. Would you say that in the majority of the circumstances where you're treating individuals, you can make reasonable improvements in the symptoms that they're experiencing or are there ever, ever any cases where that person is now having to live with, I won't call it a, well, maybe I will call it a frozen shoulder or a frozen arm where they are limited in you know, the last 20, 30 degrees of elevation permanently? There may be some permanent ramifications that we can't completely eradicate, but I am confident that we can always get some improvement, some significant improvement. Interesting. This is a small percentage, but sometimes, and this goes back to what you were saying about we're treating the whole person and, and that includes their fears and their worries and their expectations and, and everything, their emotional experience as well as their physical experience. Sometimes people feel a lot of anxiety and as you about what they're feeling. And as you try and gently unpack that, you know, there can be, well, an easier example is, let's say, chronic pain. If people feel ongoing pain, understandably, they're worried that means that they are re-injuring that part of their body. And if we can reassure them that at this point, they've had imaging done, the injury or the surgery or the knee replacement or whatever, everything has healed beautifully. There is nothing wrong physiologically with, with their body. Their tissue has healed. It looks beautiful. And so to try and then help them reconceptualize what they're feeling, that yes, they might be feeling some stiffness and some pain, some discomfort. That doesn't mean that anything bad is happening. And if they can then more comfortably go out and engage in the activities that they like to do. And again, the importance of engaging in activities that bring them joy and that they find meaningful. That's so important. They might feel some stiffness or some pain, some discomfort. How long does that last? Maybe we can get the period of post-activity pain. Maybe we can get that to last less time. For example, I had somebody yesterday and she said, I was so beautiful last weekend and I I cleaned up my garden, I raked everything for two hours, and then I went for a five kilometer walk. This is a woman who um, broke three bones in her ankle, had to have surgery over both of the malleoli, was diagnosed with chronic regional pain syndrome following. So there's a lot, and she's very anxious, and she even admitted that, yes, she's been told everything has healed completely. She can't fully accept that what she's feeling doesn't mean that there's something still physically wrong with her ankle. So there's fear mm -hmm. and there's uncertainty and uncertainty is a really, a really hard place to live. And then as I tried to unpack this a little bit more and she said, well, no, actually it's not really pain that I'm feeling it's stiffness and it doesn't feel like my other ankle. And so then I thought, okay, so we need to try and work with, yes, this feels different but different doesn't necessarily mean bad. And maybe coming to a point of acceptance that this is the new normal. Right. And that can also apply to somebody following treatment for breast cancer, that there's a lot that's happened here. Mm 
surgery, radiation, cording, maybe there's a little bit of lymphedema, and, and it's not going to feel the same as it did before. Your body has been changed. How can we help you integrate your changed body into your whole sense of yourself? And this is your new body. It's not necessarily bad. It doesn't have to prevent you from doing things. Maybe it's going to be a little bit uncomfortable at times. Let's talk about ways that we can manage that. What do you find soothing? What do you find helpful? Maybe you can engage in these same activities, but you need to break up the activities. You can't go out and garden for three hours nonstop. Maybe you need to do half an hour in the morning, half an hour in the afternoon, a little bit the next day. Maybe you need to, in between, use a little bit of ice. Maybe, you know, let's talk about some ways. And it's going to be different, but that doesn't mean it's going to be bad. Yeah, I like that a lot. Just because there was the presence of courting, it doesn't mean if there is currently courting, it doesn't mean that there is a true biological driver for your pain. And maybe there's other things going on. Some of the analogies that I use a lot or that I've seen in practice as it relates to concussion is it seems as though a lot of the time when an individual has had a concussion, everything that follows the concussion, the concussion is the reason for the symptoms that they're experiencing now. You know, they may have gone six or eight months without symptoms, and then all of a sudden they get a headache one day for a couple of days, and they come back into my office and they say my post-concussion symptoms have sort of re-exacerbated themselves, which just doesn't really appear to be like that in the literature. So we often have conversations around just because this happened to you in the past, it doesn't mean that it is the primary reason for what you are feeling now. You probably have similar conversations with the people that you serve. It's a hard conversation to have, I feel. It's one of the harder ones, I think, because as you alluded to, some people have a really tough time in letting that relationship go between, especially if it was, you know, a year long treatment or something like that. But uh, if you can, again, gently try to explore that with the person, I think that it can often then be the impetus for some additional improvement. Yeah. And it's so understandable that somebody would be hypervigilant around their body following a major injury or a concussion or a cancer diagnosis. 100%. I mean, how can they not be? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and of course we want them to, it's a fine line we have to walk because we want them to have awareness around their body and what is too much. And perhaps even being aware of the early signs, because maybe that means that, okay, that's enough for today. And, and, and going forward, that, that this is what is manageable for me mm -hmm. before exacerbating symptoms. But we don't want to create a, a hypervigilance that then in itself becomes a barrier or a limiting factor. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And, and it, can, it can be really difficult. And it's hard for people also because I think sometimes people have this and they also feel really self-conscious about being neurotic and they're afraid to say this and they're afraid to ask questions. And that's where having the space and the trusting relationship with somebody with a therapist who's really experienced where they can say to other people feel this way. Have other people gone through this? Have you seen this before? What have other people done? I mean, we can be a real informal resource just of ideas and approaches and 
sometimes anecdotes that can be helpful and inspiring. This is what other people have done, how people mm. reframe things. Yeah, I was speaking with a student yesterday and I said to them, because sometimes people don't know the question that they want to ask. They know that they aren't comfortable with, in the context of this scenario, they know that they don't understand, but they don't know how to pose a question that would help them better understand. Mm -hmm. So I just said to the individual, just say you don't understand. That's your question. I don't understand this. Can you help me understand this? And then I can provide examples based on my experience of teaching this concept prior on ways that I think you might better understand that. And then you can say, I understand this part. I still don't understand this part. And so sometimes it's as simple for the person that's going through treatment in saying, I'm scared about this, right? Just that statement, or I don't understand this. It doesn't have to be a really specific question. It could just be that statement. And then the way that I see our job is then trying to unpack that a little bit and get to a place where they feel better about that concept. Yeah, and it can take a long time. For sure. And just because we've said something to somebody once doesn't mean that they have A, intellectually understood everything that we've said, or right. B, being able to absorb it. Or maybe they've understood it and, and don't want to upload it yet. Yeah, yeah. The nuances of everything. Yeah. It's so fascinating working with people. It's also such a tremendous honor and privilege to be let in to somebody's experience like this and to witness how they are coping and how they are adapting to whatever it is that they're facing. And we can learn so much as well from our patients in, in how, they, how they deal with some really challenging things that come at them in life. Yeah. I want to ask one more question before we start to wrap up. This comes from a listener. They, I put on my Instagram that I was interviewing you and I threw some, does anyone have any questions out on the internet? And this question came up and I thought it was a good one. So we'll end with it. I love it. The question is, what are the biggest barriers that you see right now integrating massage therapy as part of the collaborative care team in, if you want to use cancer as a whole, breast cancer? That's a really good question. In many ways, the breast cancer is not a great example because, as I said, mm -hmm. there's already so much awareness around how massage can help. Mm -hmm. Cost is definitely a barrier. I'm very aware that the people I'm treating are the people who can afford to come and see me. Right. Because it's not covered by OHIP. People who have better paying jobs have more disposable income. They're also more likely to have extended health benefits. But Cancer, of course, does not discriminate by socioeconomic <laughs> factors. And so there's a whole swath of people who simply can't afford to come and see me. Mm -hmm. And then you may get into, you know, English as a first language. And are they able to access resources to find somebody like me and, and that kind of thing. So I am aware of the of the cost factor, and that's a really tricky one. And I've thought about ways in my in my private practice. I I'm I'm a sole proprietor now in in my private practice. How I can how I can do that. And I've chatted with different people, and 
possibly in the future, I'll, I'll implement something like that. In general, uh, shout out to the RMTAO. They just announced in their Friday file and the town hall that I attended recently, a new pilot project that's coming up where they're going to fund. And is it one full-time or two part-time? I'm not exactly sure of the details, but there's a pilot project to fund massage therapy as part of the team within a community health clinic I forget exactly which one in the West end of Toronto. I think that is fantastic. Kudos to the RMTAO for coming up with that, for finding the financial resources. This is going to show how massage therapy is so crucial to someone's overall health and that we should have a place within this team. I think that massage therapy has something unique to offer that the other health disciplines don't offer. And that's a whole other conversation in itself. That's a whole other two-hour conversation. It is. It is. But I agree with you. I think that it would be great to see RMTs in the biomedical setting a little bit more in hospital, inpatient, outpatient clinics. In hospice care. Yeah. Palliative care. Yeah. And I know there are great people that are championing some of those at the grassroots level, starting to, you know, people like yourself that are creating courses about, about cancer care. I know, uh, Ashley, who I work with very closely is creating a course about palliative care. And there are some great people doing work in that Eric and his courses in, uh, persistent pain and some of the other individuals that are working in that. So it's great to see that starting to gain more traction. And I hope that th this pilot project does well and that then hospitals, inpatient, outpatient clinics will start to integrate more allied health into their day-to-day -day operations. I think that that would be a really big moment in, in our industry. And I think that it is starting to change and, and the model in theory is collaborative. I think in reality, it's still quite siloed, but we're working towards that. Yeah. The more education we can provide to other health professionals so that they're aware of what it is that we all do, how we are all experts in our own little area, and the benefit that we can provide, then, then the more referrals we'll get rather than silliness like the story you described saying you might as well just go to the LCBO. <laughs> right. Pro promoting Jack Daniels over my services. <laughs> Um, well, Susan, I've really enjoyed the conversation. Um, before you leave, please let people know, the listeners know, if they are looking for care or they are therapists looking for further education on the topic, maybe shout out your website or your social media or whatever so people can find you. Thank you. Connor, I have really enjoyed this conversation. This has been great. Thanks for inviting me on. My website is susanshiptonrmt.com. That takes you to my clinic information and some helpful patient resources that I, I've linked to my site. And my social media is not quite what it should be. I am on Facebook, Susan Shipton RMT, and I have yet to really get up an Instagram page. I haven't got final details for my course on oncology massage, but I am hoping to launch later this year. So the fall of 2023, and I'll be sure to broadcast that as widely as I can. And, and I really look forward to um, working with massage therapists who, who want to learn more about how we can help people going through cancer. That would be fantastic. Thank you very much, Connor. No problem. Thanks again, Susan, for coming on. I hope 
to listeners that you found this episode to be of value to you. Have yourselves a great weekend, and we'll see you in the next one.